Section 21 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers by Albert Hubbard. Section 21 Fenelon and Madame Guillon. Part 3. A few days after my arrival at Gex, by night, I saw in a dream, but a mysterious dream, for I perfectly well distinguished it, Father Lacombe fixed on a cross of extraordinary height. He was naked in the way our Lord is pictured. I saw an amazing crowd, who covered me with confusion, and cast upon me the ignominy of his punishment. It seemed he suffered more pain than I, but I more reproaches than he. This surprised me the more, because, having seen him only once, I could not imagine what it meant. But I have indeed seen it accomplished. At the same time I saw him thus fixed to the cross, these words were impressed on me. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and these others— I have specially prayed for thee, Peter, that thy faith shall not fail. Satan has desired to sift thee. Up to that time the bishop of Geneva had shown me much esteem and kindness, and therefore this man cleverly took him off his guard. He urged upon the prelate that, in order to make certain of me for that house, he ought to compel me to give up to it the little money I had reserved for myself, and to bind me by making me superior. He knew well that I would never bind myself there, and that, my vocation being elsewhere, I could never give my capital to that house where I had come only as a visitor, and that I would not be superior, as I had many times already declared, and that even should I bind myself it would only be on the condition that this should not be. I believe, indeed, that this objection to be superior was a remnant of the selfhood, colored with humility. The Bishop of Geneva did not in the least penetrate the intentions of that ecclesiastic, who was called in the country the little bishop, because of the ascendancy he had acquired over the mind of the Bishop of Geneva. He thought it was through affection for me, and zeal for this house, that this man desired to bind me to it. Consequently, he at once fell in with the proposal, resolving to carry it through at whatever price. The ecclesiastic, seeing he had so well succeeded, no longer kept any bonds as regarded me. He commenced by stopping the letters I wrote to Father Lacombe. Father Lacombe none the less went to Annecy, where he found the bishop much prejudiced and embittered. He said to him, My father, it is absolutely necessary to bind that lady to give what she has to the house of Gex, and to become the superior. My lord, answered Father Lacombe, you know what she has herself told you of her vocation, both at Paris and in this country and therefore i do not believe she will consent to bind herself it is not likely that having given up everything in the hope of going to geneva she should bind herself elsewhere 
and thus render it impossible for her to accomplish God's designs for her. She has offered to remain with these good sisters as a lodger. If they desire to keep her in that capacity, she will remain with them. If not, she is resolved to withdraw into some convent, until God shall dispose of her otherwise. The bishop answered, My father, I know all that, but at the same time I know she is obedient, and if you so order her, she will surely do it. It is for this reason, my lord, because she is obedient, that one should be extremely cautious in the commands one gives her, answered the father. This ecclesiastic and his friend went through all the places where Father Lacombe had held his mission to decry him and to speak against him so violently that a woman was afraid to say her pater because she said she had learnt it from him. They made a fearful scandal through the whole country, for the day after my arrival at the Ursuline of Thonan he set out in the morning to preach Lenten sermons at the valley of Aosta. He came to say adieu to me, and at the same time told me he would go to Rome, and probably would not return, that his superiors might keep him there that he was sorry to leave me in a strange country without help and persecuted by every one did not that trouble me i said to him my father i am not troubled at it i use the creatures for god and by his order through his mercy i get on very well without them i am quite content never to see you again if such be his will and to remain under persecution. For me there was hardly a day past that they did not put upon me new insults, and make attacks quite unexpected. The new Catholics, on the report of the bishop, the ecclesiastic, and the sisters of Gex, stirred up against me all people of piety. I was not much affected by that, if I had been at all, it would have been because everything was thrown upon Father Lacombe, although he was absent, and they made use even of his absence to destroy all the good he had done in the country by his missions and sermons, which was very great. The devil gained much in this business. I could not, however, pity this good father, remarking herein the conducting of God, who desired to annihilate him. At the commencement I committed faults by a too great anxiety and eagerness to justify him, conceiving it simple justice. I did not the same for myself, for I did not justify myself but our Lord made me understand I should do for the Father what I did for myself, and allow him to be destroyed and annihilated, for thereby he would derive a far greater glory than he had done from all his reputation. After Father Lacombe arrived, he came to see me, and wrote to the bishop to know if he approved of my making use of him and confessing to him as I had done before. The bishop sent me word to do so, and thus I did it in all possible submissiveness. In his absence I always confessed to the confessor of the house, 
The first thing he said to me was that all his lights were deceptions, and that I might return. I did not know why he said this. He added that he could not see an opening to anything, and therefore it was not probable God had anything for me to do in that country. These words were the first greeting he gave me. When Father Lacombe proposed me to return, I felt some slight repugnance in the senses which did not last long. The soul cannot but allow herself to be led by obedience, not that she regards obedience as a virtue, but it is that she cannot be otherwise, nor wish to do otherwise. She allows herself to be drawn along without knowing why or how, as a person who should allow himself to be carried along by the current of a rapid river. She cannot apprehend deception, nor even make a reflection thereon. Formerly it was by self-surrender, but in her present state it is without even knowing or understanding what she does, like a child whom its mother might hold over the waves of a disturbed sea, and who fears nothing, because it neither sees nor knows the danger, or like a madman who casts himself into the sea without fear of destroying himself. It is not that exactly, for to cast oneself is an own action, which here the soul is without. She finds herself there, and she sleeps in the vessel without dreading the danger. It was a long time since any means of support had been sent me. Untroubled and without any anxiety for the future, unable to fear poverty and famine, I saw myself stripped of everything, unprovided for and without papers. My daughter recovered her health. I must tell how this happened. She had smallpox and the purples. They brought a doctor from Geneva, who gave her up in despair. They made Father Lacombe come in to take her confession. He gave her his blessing, and at the same instant the smallpox and the purples disappeared, and the fever left her. The doctor, though a Protestant, offered to give a certificate of miracle. But although my daughter was restored, my crosses were not lessened, owing to her bad education. The persecutions on the part of the new Catholics continued, and became even more violent, without my ceasing on that account to do them all the good I could. What caused me some pain was that the mistress of my daughter came often to converse with me. I saw so much imperfection in these conversations, although spiritual, that I could not avoid making it known to her and as this hurt her i was weak enough to be pained at paining her and to continue out of mere complacency things which i saw to be very imperfect father lacombe introduced order in many things regarding my daughter but the mistress was so hurt that the friendship she had for me changed into coolness and distance however she had grace she readily got over it but her natural character carried her away father lacombe was a very great preacher his style was peculiarly his own various accounts come to us of his power in swaying his audience the man was tall 
thin, ascetic, and of remarkably handsome presence. His speech was slow, deliberate, kindly, courteous, and most effective. He disarmed criticism from his first word. His voice was not loud nor deep, and he had that peculiar oratorical power which by pause and poise compels the audience to come to him. Madame Guillon relates that when he began to speak, it was in a tone scarcely audible, and the audience leaned forward and listened with breathless interest. Occasionally during his sermon he would pause and kneel in silent prayer, and often by his pauses, his very silences, he would reach a degree of eloquence that would sway his hearers to tears. The man had intellect, great spirituality, and, moreover, was a great actor, which latter fact need not be stated to his discredit. He used his personality to press home the truth he wished to impart. The powers at Rome, realizing Father Lacombe's ability as a preacher, refused to allow him a regular parish, but employed him in moving about from place to place, conducting retreats. We would now call him a traveling evangelist. Monasteries and nunneries are very human institutions, and quibble, strife, Jealousy, bickering, faction, and feud play an important part in their daily routine. To keep down the cliques and prevent disintegration, the close inspection of visiting prelates is necessary. Father Lacombe, by his gentle saintly manner, his golden speech, was everywhere a power for good. Madame Guillon came under the sway of Father Lacombe's eloquence, she felt the deep abiding strength of his character he was the first genuine man she had ever met and in degree he filled her ideal she sought him in confession and the quality of her confession must surely have made an impression on him spirituality and sex are closely akin oratory and a well-sexed nature go together Father Lacombe was a man, Madame Guillon was a woman. Both were persons of high intellect, great purity of purpose, and sincerity of intent. But neither knew that piety is a by-product of sex. They met to discuss religious themes. She wished to advise with him as to her spiritual estate. He treated her as a daughter, kissed her forehead when they parted, blessed her with laying on of hands. Their relationship became mystic, symbolic, solemn, and filled with a deep religious awe. She had dreams where Father Lacombe appeared to her. Afterward she could not tell whether the dream was a vision or a reality. When they met in reality, she construed it into a dream— God was leading them, they said. They lived in God and in each other. Father Lacombe went his way, bidding her a tender farewell, parting forever. In a few weeks Madame would appear at one of his retreats with a written consent from the bishop. She followed him to his home in Gex and then to Geneva. She entered a convent and worked as a menial so as to be near him. 
the bishop made Father Lacombe her official adviser, so as to lend authority to their relationship. All would have been well, had not the ardor and intensity of Madame Guillon's nature attracted the attention, and then the jealousy of various monks and nuns. A woman of Madame Guillon's nature is content with nothing less than ownership and complete possession. She even went so far as to announce herself as Mother by Grace to Father Lacombe. This meant that God had sanctified their relationship, so she was his actual mother. All brought about by a miracle no less peculiar and wonderful than the story of the bread and wine. Through this miracle of motherhood, she thought she must be near him always, care for him, mother him, drudge for him, slave for him, share his poverty and pain. Such abject devotion is both beautiful and pathetic. That it bordered on insanity, there is no doubt. Father Lacombe accepted the motherhood as sent by God, but later distrusted it and tried to send Madame Guillon away. She accepted this new cross as a part of her purification. She suffered intensely, and so did he. It was a relationship divinely human, and they were trying to prove to themselves and to others that it was something else, for at that time people did not believe in the divinity of human love. Rumors became rife, charges were brought and proved. The Church is now, and always has been, very lenient in its treatment of erring priests. In fact, those in authority take the lofty ground that a priest, like a king, can do no wrong, and that sins of the flesh are impossible to one divinely anointed. And as for the woman, she is merely guilty of indiscretion at the worst. Madame Guillon's indiscretion took the form of religious ecstasy, and she claimed that the innermost living God was guiding her footsteps into a life of pure love or constant divine adoration. Charges of false doctrine were brought against her, and Father Lacombe was duly cautioned to have nothing to do with Madame Guillon in any way. For a time he assumed a harshness he did not feel, and ordered her back to her home to remain with her kinsman, that he had a communication from God, saying this was his will. Madame started to obey, but fell ill to the point of death, and Father Lacombe was sent for to come and take her last confession, and bestow the rite of extreme unction. He came— a miracle was performed, and Madame got well. The relationship was too apparent to wave or overlook. Scandal filled the air. Nuns and monks were quitting their religious devotions to talk about it. Common little plain preachers might have their favorites, but Father Lacombe and Madame Guillon were in the world's eye. The churchly authorities became alarmed at the influence exerted by Father Lacombe and Madame Guillon. Their doctrine of quietism, or constant pure love, was liable to create a schism. 
What the church wants is fixity, security, and obedience. At that time in France, the civil authorities and the church worked together. The lettre du cachet was utilized, and Father Lacombe was landed suddenly and safely in the Bastille. We have gotten so used to liberty that we can hardly realize that only a hundred years ago men were arrested without warrant, no charge having been made against them, tried in secret and disposed of as if they were already dead. Father Lacombe never regained his liberty, his mind reeled under his misfortunes, and he died insane. Madame Guillon was banished to a nunnery, which was a Bastille arranged for ladies. For two years she was kept under lock and key. The authorities, however, relaxed their severities, not realizing that she was really more dangerous than Father Lacombe. Priests are apt to deal gently with beautiful women. From her prison, Madame Guillon managed to get a letter to Fenelon, Bishop of Cambrai. She asked for a hearing, and that her case be passed upon by a tribunal. Fenelon referred the letters to Bossuet, Bishop of Meaux, recommending that the woman be given a hearing, and judgment rendered as to the extent of her heresy. By a singular fatality, Bossuet appointed Fenelon as chairman, or chief inquisitor of the committee, to investigate the vagaries and conduct of the madame. Bossuet himself became interested in the woman. He went to see her in prison, and her beauty, her intellect, her devotion, appealed to him. Bossuet was an orator, the greatest in France at that time. His only rival was Fenelon, but the style and manner of the men were so different that they really played off against each other as foils. Bossuet was vehement, powerful, what we would call Western. Fenelon was suave, gentle, and won by an appeal to the highest and best in the hearts of his hearers. Father Lacombe and Fenelon were very much alike, only Father Lacombe had occupied a local position, while that of Fenelon was national. Fenelon was a diplomat, an author, an orator. Madame Guillon's autobiography reveals the fact that Bossuet was enough interested in her case to have her removed to a nunnery near where he lived and there he often called upon her. He read to her from his own writings instead of analyzing hers, which proves priests to be simply men at the last. Bossuet needed the feminine mind to bolster his own, but Madame and he did not mix. In her autobiography she hesitates about actually condemning Bossuet but describes him as short and fat, so it looks as if she were human too, since what repelled her were his physical characteristics. When a woman describes a man, she always begins by telling how he looks. Madame Guillon says, The Bishop of Meaux wished me to change my name, so that, as he said, it should not be known I was in his diocese, and that people should not torment him on my account. 
The project was the finest in the world, if he could have kept a secret. But he told everybody he saw that I was in such a convent, under such a name. Immediately from all sides, anonymous libels against me were sent to the Mother Superior and the nuns. With Fenelon it was very different. Her heart went out to him. He was the greatest man she had ever seen, greater even than Father Lacombe. Fenelon's first interview with Madame Guillon was simply in an official way, but her interest in him was very personal. This is evidenced from her brief but very fervent mention of the incident. Having been visited by the Abbé de Fenelon, I was suddenly with extreme force and sweetness interested for him. It seemed to me our Lord united him to me very intimately, more so than any one else. It appeared to me that, as it were, a spiritual filiation took place between him and me. The next day I had the opportunity of seeing him again. I felt interiorly this first interview did not satisfy him, that he did not relish me. I experienced a something which made me long to pour my heart into his, but I found nothing to correspond, and this made me suffer much. In the night I suffered extremely about him. In the morning I saw him. We remained for some time in silence, and the cloud cleared off a little, but it was not yet as I wished it. I suffered for eight whole days, after which I found myself united to him without obstacle. And from that time I find the union increasing in a pure and ineffable manner. It seems to me that my soul has a perfect rapport with his and those words of David regarding Jonathan, that his soul clave to that of David, appeared to me suitable for this union. Our Lord has made me understand the great designs he has for this person, and how dear he is to him. The justice of God causes suffering from time to time for certain souls until their entire purification. As soon as they have arrived where God wishes them, one suffers no longer for anything for them, and the union which had been often covered with clouds is cleared up in such a manner that it becomes like a very pure atmosphere, penetrated everywhere, without distinction, by the light of the sun. As Fenelon was given to me in a more intimate manner than any other, what i have suffered what i am suffering and what i shall suffer for him surpasses anything that can be told the least partition between him and me between him and god is like a little dirt in the eye which causes it an extreme pain and which would not inconvenience any other part of the body where it might be put what I suffer for him is very different from what I suffer for others, but I am unable to discover the cause, unless it be God has united me to him more intimately than to any other, and that God has greater designs for him than for the others. Fenelon the ascetic, he of the subtle intellect, and high spiritual quality had never met a woman on an absolute equality. 
Madame Guillon's religious fervor disarmed him. He saw her often, that he might comprehend the nature of her mission. In the official investigation that followed, he naturally found himself the defender of her doctrines. She was condemned by the court, but Fenelon put in a minority report of explanation. The nature of the man was to defend the accused person. This was evidenced by his defense of the Huguenots, when he lifted up his voice for their liberty at a time when religious liberty was unknown. His words might have been the words of Thomas Jefferson, to whom Fenelon bore a strange resemblance in feature. Says Fenelon, The right to be wrong in matters of religious belief must be accorded. Otherwise we produce hypocrites instead of persons with an enlightened belief that is fully their own. If truth be mighty and God all-powerful, his children need not fear that disaster will follow freedom of thought. After Madame Guillon was condemned, she was allowed to go on suspended sentence, with a caution that silence was to be the price of her liberty for before this she had attracted to herself even in prison congregations of several hundred to whom she preached and among whom she distributed her writings the earnest the sincere the spiritual fenelon never suspected where this friendship was to lead even when madame guillon slipped into his simple little household as a servant under an assumed name he was inwardly guileless this proud woman with the domineering personality now wore wooden shoes and the garb of a scullion she scrubbed the floors did laundry work cooked even worked in the garden looking after the vegetables and the flowers that she might be near him Fenelon accepted this servile devotion, regarding it as a part of the woman's penance for sins done in the past. Most certainly love is blind, at least myopic, for Fenelon of the strong and subtle mind could not see that service for the beloved is the highest joy, and the more menial the service the better." Madame sought to deceive herself by making her person unsightly to her lord, and so she wore coarse and ragged dresses, calloused her hands, and allowed the sun to tan and freckle her face. Of course, then, the inevitable happened. The intimacy slipped off into the most divine of human loves, or the most human of divine loves, if you prefer to express it so. To prevent the scandal, the other servants were sent away. Nothing can be kept secret except for a day. A person of Madame Guillon's worth could not be lost or secreted. For Fenelon to defend her and then secrete her was unpardonable to the arrogant Bossuet. Fenelon had now to defend himself how much of political rivalry as well as ecclesiastic has been made by the favor of women who shall say of her intimate relationship with fenelon madame guillon says nothing the bond was of too sacred a nature to discuss and here her frankness falters as it should she does not even defend it 
Fenelon and Madame Guillon were plotting against the church and state. How very natural! The Madame was fifty, Fenelon was forty-seven. They certainly were old enough to know better, but they did not. They parted of their own accord, solemnly and in tearful prayer, for parting is such sweet sorrow. And then, in a few weeks, they met again to consult as to the future. Soon Bossuet stepped in and induced the Vatican to do for them what they could not do alone. Fenelon was stripped of his official robes, reduced to the rank of a parish priest, and sent to minister to an obscure and stricken church in the south of France. The country was battle-scarred, and poverty, ignorance, and want stalked through the streets of the little village. Here Fenelon lived, as did the exiled Copernicus, forbidden to travel more than six miles from his church, or to speak to any but his own flock. Here he gave his life as a teacher of children, a nurse, a doctor, and a spiritual guide to a people almost devoid of spirituality. Madame Guillon was sent to a nunnery where she was actually a prisoner working as a menial. Fenelon and Madame Guillon never met again, but once a month they sent each other a love letter on spiritual themes in which love wrote between the lines. Time had tamed the passions of Madame Guillon, otherwise no convent walls would have been high enough to keep her captive. Sweet, sad memories fed her declining days, and within a few weeks of her death she declared that her life had been a success, for I have been loved by Fenelon, the greatest and most saintly man of his time. And as for the Abbe Fenelon, the verdict of the world seems to be that he was ruined by Madame Guillon. But if he ever thought so, no sign of recrimination ever escaped his lips. End of section 21. Fenelon and Madame Guillon, part 3.